From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk is Hudson Institute's new podcast. We're glad you found us and hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes. In each episode, Policy Talk will feature in-depth conversations with some of Hudson Institute's more than 60 policy experts analyzing and proposing solutions to some of the most vexing foreign and domestic policy challenges facing the United States and the world today. Founded more than a half century ago, Hudson Institute has a long and proud history of being a voice in Washington and in democratic capitals around the globe, promoting American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In today's episode, we'll talk about one of the deadliest public health crises the United States has faced in decades, the opioid epidemic. Joining us is one of the world's leading experts on drug policy, John Walters. While he currently serves as Hudson Institute's chief operating officer, prior to joining Hudson, he has over 25 years of experience on the front lines of America's effort to combat the individual and societal devastation wrought by illegal drug use. Most notably, Mr. Walters served as the Director of National Drug Control Policy, also known as the nation's drug czar, from 2001 to 2009, serving in George W. Bush's cabinet for the duration of his presidency. During his tenure in office, Mr. Walters oversaw the development and implementation of a national drug strategy that contributed to a remarkable 25% reduction in teen drug use, meaning millions of teens avoided the pitfalls of drugs during their most formative years. John, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. It is clear that we are facing an unprecedented epidemic. The latest year we have data for, 2016, and we'll talk about that data lag in a moment, uh, we lost over 65,000 Americans to drug overdoses. That's more than we lose in car accidents, to gun deaths, and even to suicide. Nearly everyone in America has been touched by this epidemic or knows someone who has lost a loved one. So what's going on? How did we get here? Why is this worse than previous epidemics like the crack epidemic or methamphetamines? And and what are the trends for the future? Well, of course, you're right. The uh, staggering fact is that uh, more Americans are dying by the tens of thousands from this than ever have in history uh, of the United States from substance abuse. Um, The larger reason is both the tolerance of drug use that has been common in our society since essentially the time of the baby boomers, of which I am one, um, and uh, is difficult to um, to change given the deep embedded uh, cultural uh, um, dimension of, the t- of that tolerance. But more importantly, and what I have argued in thinking about the uh, experiences I've had in drug policy and looking at the current situation is an unprecedented amount of, um, of, of, uh, of dangerous addictive substances available and, 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 uh, and uh, being used now in American society. I do think we need to rethink, and I think that failure to think clearly about the drug problem is a contributing factor to the, to the spread and the continued death rate. So uh, we've seen a just vast increase, especially since 2010, on uh, the death rate, with particularly driven by opioids. Um, why is that happening? Is this you hear a lot of people talking about um, the overprescription of uh, pharmaceutical opioids and, and painkillers that leading to to many of the deaths? Um, but you also hear about fentanyl. What's the give us kind of the timeline there? Uh, some of this happened while you were in office, and, and in full disclosure, I served as your deputy chief of staff. So when we were in office, 
um, during that time, but do you want to give us some of that history and, and what's changed that's shown this more than 400% increase in death since 2010? Yeah, I think what points you in the, in the direction of thinking more seriously the issue of the supply of these substances is two things. One, we've learned the hard way that um, um, use of these substances and falling victim to addiction is not something that has to do with your character, your family, your socioeconomic background, your intelligence, um, or where you live. Um, drug abuse and overdose deaths have devastated people everywhere. They take our best and brightest, they take our most gifted, artistic, they take people who are troubled, they take people who are disadvantaged. Um, as, I, as you pointed out, almost every family I meet has had a friend or a family member who suffered from substance abuse and increasingly suffered uh, death at the hands of these substances. Uh, what has contributed to the spike in, in recent years has been um, opioids, as you said, that began uh, in, um, in the late 90s and in the case of opioids and built in two other additional stages. So it was a three-stage additive increase in damage from opioids. First was prescription drug abuse, um, the diversion of prescription opioids, the overprescribing of prescription opioids, the view that, that very powerful prescription opioids could be handed out with very little supervision and very little care in some cases as a as a safe, pre-hitherto un, unrecognized, safe and effective treatment of pain. In fact, it, the argument was that people shouldn't suffer any pain at the levels they had been. They uh, had a right to be pain-free, and opioids, powerful opioids, were the solution. Uh, there was insufficient care. We could should have treated, treated uh, pain more carefully, as we can treat it. It's not either or. But uh, the marketing and distribution of these substances, oxycotton, hydrocodone, oxycodone uh, the products, um, created a huge increase in addiction and overdose deaths running from, as I say, the late 90s up till about 2004 and continuing. On top of that increase of deaths was added the uh, increase caused by heroin overdoses uh, as Mexico began to sharply increase production beginning in about 2010. And um, um, that became a, an additional source of addiction uh, sometimes people moved from prescription um, painkillers to heroin. Sometimes they just added it. Or sometimes they came to heroin separately. But heroin became more pervasive and became purer and more potent, and that contributed both to addiction and to deaths. And then thirdly, about 2014 was fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, very powerful. Small amounts are, are, are a source of extreme um, uh, danger for individuals, and that has really caused the death rate to skyrocket since uh, 2000, um, about 2014. Overall, rates of overdose deaths have been increasing at 20% per year, so the, uh, the, the, the death toll is staggering. And what's, it's so staggering that you can almost ask the question, why isn't America more bothered about this? So if you take the horrendous loss on 9-11, and you add to it all American combat deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan during the war, subsequent wars, um, the total is around 10,000 deaths of Americans. Um, as you pointed out, we're now losing um, six times that amount and more every single year. 
and the kind of reaction you're getting is not the same. Again, I think that is because we don't understand properly the, the dynamic, the strategic relationships that are important here. That's right. What, what do you think is the root of that misunderstanding? I think people believe that, um, as although we call addiction a disease, that this is something where the victims are complicit. It's not like getting polio or um, somebody bringing anthrax in and, and infecting and killing people. They believe this is somehow um, a choice. And it is true that, the, that the, the use at the beginning is something that somebody chooses. They're not, they're not addicted from birth. But they are from birth genetically constructed so that they are susceptible to addiction. Every human being, it's kind of a bio, biochemical fact, can be made addicted. Now, they will, how rapidly and, 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 and how easily um, uh, will depend, and there are, we know there are inherited traits, but basically, um, it's, it's just a part of the biological makeup of human beings that these substances take over their lives. Um, and it's not just human beings. We can do this to other animals as we do for research, monkeys, rats, mice. Um, so um, um, we have a kind of view that, yes, we want people to be responsible and take responsibility for their choices, and we should. And yes, we want people who are uh, addicted to make the choice to get clean and sober and stay clean and sober. But we also fail to understand the power these substances have to change the brain, to make life such that uh, it collapses down into seeking and using these substances almost entirely. Uh, again, addiction takes different forms for different people, but the common thread here is um, the ability to choose is impaired, the ability to judge is impaired, the ability to recognize the disease is impaired, and the ability to get on with your life is impaired, and it's impaired in a permanent way, um, uh, especially with opioids, who that who that uh, the substances that some have argued are maybe the most cruel because we have longitudinal studies of, of, of opioid addiction in the United States, usually focused on heroin going back 30, 40 years. And there are a clear in multiple instances of people being clean and sober for five years and relapsing for various reasons. So um, we'd like to think that we can just treat people and, and get them back on their feet and get their lives on without, without risk. But it's a risk to every human being, and it's a particular risk of relapse for everyone who has been susceptible to addiction. That's right. Now, there's been a, there was a lot of discussion uh, uh, during the Obama administration, a lot of focus on the prescribing side of this. And this has kind of been a divide in the policy space for a while on this issue. It, in my view, it shouldn't be. I think you can see both problems, uh, both the illicit uh, distribution of these substances as well as the legal uh, sanctioned uh, distribution, although uh, not done in a, in a safe and effective way. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about where we s we've seen a breaking point in the data on the, uh, you know, there was a vast increase in the number of prescription opioids um, being given out and, and ultimately misused. Um, some steps were taken uh, during your time in office to, to curtail that, what the results of that w was, and, and why, even though that staunched kind of the, the, the flow of these drugs legally um, through pill mills, or, that's illegal, but, but through more legal or quasi-legal means, 
um, how that kind of has, has maybe stabilized and then talk about where the cartels that you spoke of earlier, Mexico, uh, came in and, and altered the trajectory of this. The pill mill phenomenon came about through the overprescribing of opioids. We're now, for the first time, coming to grips with this and coming to grips with the fact that there needs to be greater care in the treatment of pain and also greater sense that opioids are not the right pain treatment for many kinds of, uh, of, of, of pain. Um, the medical profession has learned. Unfortunately, it's been a costly um, uh, process. But um, we can now begin to go at them, and the, and the recent declines, which actually go back a few years, um, um, in, in, in reducing opioid uh, abuse and death is from, from medical diversion is something that is focused on cutting off the supply, cutting off pill mills, cutting off criminal uh, medical practitioners, and uh, helping to be more careful about uh, things like diversion and uh, um, um, uh, doctor shopping through prescription monitoring systems and, and forged prescriptions. Um, but the, the real problem here is a failure to recognize that um, the supply is a more critical element. Um, there was a resistance to going after some of the, and the debate about whether some pill mills were really criminal when they were putting out tens of thousands of prescriptions every month. Um, there was a debate that, no, 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 this is the proper way to have medical practice, and there's been a failure of some of the institutions of medicine and regulation to focus on this. But in addition, uh, we've had a, a, a view that during the Obama administration that kind of enforcing the drug laws was unjust. Uh, it was unjust at our border. It was unjust to minorities. It was unjust to uh, um, certain segments of our society. And um, as a result, you had less enforcement. You had more supply. You had an abandonment of concern with working with places like Mexico and Colombia. And you had a failure to um, enforce international treaties. Most drugs that are killing America today come from outside the United States. Most of those pass within across the southwest border, and most of those pass within six feet of a uniform federal agent. That is a massive failure of intelligence and operations. It's a massive failure of engaging uh, other countries at, with a priority necessary to reduce the, the death toll. Fentanyl, for example, is largely, we believe, from law enforcement sources being produced in China or precursors to produce it are made in China and shipped to Mexico where it's marketed across the southwest border through Mexican gangs. There have been some recent stories saying, oh, no, no, it's coming across the Canadian border. Well, it's coming through the mail. It is coming across borders. But the reason why Mexico is so important is the distribution and marketing arms of these Mexican criminal gangs are a key part of bringing these to most communities. If you read the, uh, the book Dreamland by Mr. Quinones, he talks about one group going back a number of years now that is specifically marketing into areas of the country that don't have established distribution um, uh, organizations that they have to have fights with. So there's even been a tactic of marketing to bring uh, these deadly drugs to more people. Fentanyl has revolutionized this because it's a, it's a synthetic. It doesn't require uh, a plant that's visible. It doesn't require the same kind of processing, and it is extremely potent. I mean, the estimates from law enforcement are uh, $60,000 to make uh, a kilo or 2.2 pounds of, of fentanyl. It's so concentrated in, in, in millions of a gram is the way we measure doses 
of this, not milligrams, but micrograms, um, that a kilo or 2.2 pounds is 10 million doses. Um, that is an enormously profitable product if you're a drug dealer, and it's, it's revolutionary compared to other drugs. So we've had, we've had uh, first pills, which are the most con controlled substance, some of the most controlled products in our country, who became uncontrolled. We've had heroin coming from Mexico that became less and less controlled as we, as we failed to focus on crime, our border, and, in, 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 and holding uh, uh, our partners in Mexico responsible for working with us. And then we had fentanyl coming from China and uh, marketed through some of those same groups, killing even more Americans. Now, I hate, hate to say this, but there's no sign that this is not going to continue to get worse. Uh, we had a decline in cocaine production in Colombia while we were in office as a result of President Uribe getting in 2006. Overall uh, measures and workplace testing showed cocaine went down 60% or so. Um, um, cocaine production has gone back above the levels prior to President Uribe's inauguration in 2002. So we are now seeing more and more cocaine overdose deaths. We're seeing more meth made in Mexico. So um, um, as horrendous as the 60,000 deaths a year are, um, all the indicators are that it's that it's worse now, and we haven't seen, we aren't aware of it yet because, of the, as you mentioned, the lag in data. And two, it's getting worse because we both got more supply from deadly drugs, and we've also had a incredibly irresponsible discussion of allowing marijuana, which is by all available decades-long research, a gateway starting point for most people who get into trouble. We're having that being discussed and marketed on a wider and wider scale. So we're opening up the top of the funnel. The bottom of the funnel is producing tens of thousands of deaths a year in overdoses, and there's no sign that that's not getting worse. Good. Now, you've touched on a lot of uh, good topics there. I want to come back to the marijuana uh, issue in a few moments. Uh, let's dig a little deeper on fentanyl. You had an experience, or I should say we, during the uh, your tenure in the Bush administration um, where there was a, a fentanyl outbreak. This was, you know, early on. Uh, fentanyl, we now know, is driving a lot of these, these deaths due to the potency you just shared with us, which is um, truly terrifying. The difference between one grain or two grains of salt and three grains of salt-sized fentanyl dose is the difference between uh, you know, a high and death, um, which is why we're seeing a lot of these deaths. You want to kind of share that uh, that experience uh, where there was that initial fentanyl outbreak and and what you learned from that and how we can apply that to what's going on now? Yeah, I think we we, we do want to explain that the reason that fentanyl has been so deadly is it's so concentrated and it's very difficult for the drug dealers to dilute it in a non-fatal form. As I said, 2.2 pounds makes 10 million non-lethal doses. 2.2 pounds also makes 500,000 lethal doses. Um, so this is not only something that can be used as a, uh, a deadly poison and substance of abuse. It can also be used as a weapon of mass destruction if you can aerate it and distribute it over large areas. It's been used, for example, some listeners may remember when the Russians had a, a terrorist takeover of a theater in Chechen Moscow by terrorists. Chechen yeah. terrorists. Um, they pumped fentanyl gas into the facility, killed some people because of concentration levels, but it was designed to um, to render unconscious the the, re the the people inside so that they could they could uh, uh, find the terrorist and and try to save more people. Again, it's a crude way, and I guess that's 
not uncommon for the Russian uh, security forces, but it was a crude way to go after this. But that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. In 2006, there was a fentanyl outbreak in the United States, as you alluded to, which ended up, um, based on investigative information, looking like it came from one individual in Mexico who cooked a or created a small batch of fentanyl. It started to come across the border, and we started to see deaths. It was mixed with heroin. It was mixed sometimes with cocaine. Um, and um, But again, it was so potent that you ended up seeing deaths in uh, Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in um, a variety of states and localities reported by law enforcement. Uh, but in the end, roughly 700 people died from the uh, overdose uh, uh, of fentanyl uh, that was uh, rooted from this one individual incident. Now, the Mexicans did apprehend the individual. There was not uh, um, um, a follow-on. Uh, fentanyl is, 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 has been described as something that's it's, uh, a little more difficult to make than um, meth was when we had meth cooks in, in uh, um, uh, parts of the country. But um, it's not as difficult to make as something like LSD, which requires some real chemical capability and knowledge. But nonetheless, um, um, this is a very dangerous omen for the future. One of the things that struck me about that outbreak is, is we it was a, a public health crisis. And you look back now, 700 deaths versus what were, you know, tens of thousands of deaths we're seeing now. But at the time was was the true power of those who were of opioids over those who were addicted. I remember meeting with local law enforcement, I believe it was in Detroit, and they were talking about how the, uh, you know, addicts, when they hear about overdose deaths like this, you would think that would scare them straight and they'd stay away. But it, the effect was quite the opposite. They would, addicts would say, wow, there's some good stuff here um, that's going to give me a, a stronger high. And, and that truly shows the brain chemistry that has changed is, is these powerful substances take over someone's mind, that death is not even really, a, is not a, something to keep people away from this, but in fact, uh, draws them to it. Um, I think that's an important point for people to think about when they try to understand the phenomenon as a policy matter, but also when they try to understand it in the case of family members in, in all too many instances. That is, the, 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 these substances not only create a kind of euphoria, but the use of them um, uh, results in the body's effort, the brain's effort, to adjust to back to normal. And such that when you don't have them, you get the phenomenon known as withdrawal. You become sick, or what sometimes the addicted refer to as being dope sick. And so there's a kind of push-pull. On the one hand, yes, I may be drawn to the euphoric effect of these drugs, but on the other hand, once I start using them in a, in a regular and, 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 and continuous way, when I don't have them, I feel terribly ill. So I'm, I, I want more powerful drugs also because the body is trying to adapt. And, it, and I, in order to get the effect I want or in order to, 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 to continue the effect uh, and avoid sickness, I need more and more powerful substances. That's what also kind of drives the phenomenon of addiction toward overdose and puts the individual at, at risk. Um, I, that's, a, that's a very important fact, and it's not just that addicts want to commit suicide. Generally speaking, they don't. 
But what they do want is they want to they want to begin to uh, um, deal with the craving, with the need that they have, and that need gets stronger. And the biggest phenomenon they have is that somebody rips them off by diluting the drugs that they buy at the regular price, and they don't get the drugs because the person is trying to make more money. So they have a common uh, experience that leads them to seek stronger and stronger drugs. The stronger and dro- stronger drugs kill them. That's right. Well, one of the uh, I want to now get to some of the solutions that you. Uh, think that the administration, that law enforcement, both at the local and the national level, can do. Um, but first, let's we teased twice the data lag. Do you want to talk about the data problem? I know it plays into some of the solutions uh, you see on on this front. Um, tell us why when it, the latest data we have for overdoses is 2016 when we're in the middle of 2018. Well, it's basically because we have not made this a priority. And it, it, what's startling when you think about it is. Um, given the magnitude of the deaths and, and, and the fact that the deaths are kind of the tip of the iceberg. The deaths are the most obvious and, and sad and ugly fact of addiction as it spreads. But overall addiction, we don't even have a measure of because uh, obviously there are many, many thousands more people addicted than are dying. Um, and we don't, have a, we don't have a clear idea of how fast that's growing. We don't have a clear idea of, um, of the... Uh, um, areas of the population. We do know that overdose deaths are now affecting people at uh, not just in, in, their, in, in young adult years, 20s or so, but increasingly in their 40s and 50s, even in their 60s. The death rate is now so high, it's changed the life expectancy for Americans, particularly American males uh, in the United States for the first time. So the, the magnitude of the phenomenon is, 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 is pretty comprehensive. What's shocking is we talk about this as an epidemic, but we don't we don't measure it like an epidemic. If you had an epidemic, you would be tracking the epidemic every week, every month in real time or virtual real time. We have surveys now that ask people query data over the course of a year and then um, try to put it together in a um, comprehensive package in the at the end of a year, uh, um, sometimes longer. This is like trying to drive your car or try to figure out where to put uh, responses by uh, having your entire vision a year ago or more. Um, it's not going to work, and it's, uh, it's, it's contributing to the deaths. We need real-time data. We need data that also allows us to focus not only um, uh, efforts to, to suppress the supply and stop and cut off this poison, but also can allow us to mobilize treatment resources, intervention resources, public health resources, as well as public safety resources. And my argument is, the reconception that's necessary is is to stop blaming the victims who are addicted. Stop thinking about the only thing you can do is either talk to them about addiction or give them treatment. The reason that prevention is unlikely to work here is we have an underlying part of our freedom in our culture that says, yeah, when you're a young kid, you can experiment with these drugs. The drugs that their parents or their grandparents experimented with are vastly different and less dangerous than the drugs that are there on the street today. But when they watch um, uh, popular entertainment or uh, uh, 
when they hear on the internet that everybody does it and it's part of what you do when you're when you're ta a risk taker or edgy or you're not going to be subject to the constraints of of, of, of of adults as you grow up or as you as you make your own way then they get trapped into this kind of uh, um, um, use of these dangerous substances when that happens you know, yes, they're watching nightly news stories about people dying every night in many communities that are affected. When that those stories are not enough to get people to stop, it's difficult to conceive of a prevention campaign. Many times you'll hear public officials say, well, we need a videotape that explains what this is. The news media is not lying about the deaths. They're telling you about it. They're telling you about celebrities. They're telling you about non-celebrities. They're telling you about how horrendous this is. I believe that both President Trump and Hillary Clinton were educated by the campaign in battleground states, New England, Ohio, Pennsylvania, where they came to talk about policy and people interrupted them and said, you don't understand, we're dying here. You have to stop the opioid epidemic. So I believe they get it, but I don't believe all of America gets it. And I don't believe elites in particular in many places get it. And um, that disconnect is, re is the result of, of blaming the victim, not having current data, not holding people accountable. And fundamentally, it's misconceiving this as a matter of choice and not a matter of poison. If you don't stop the poison, you will not stop the dying. <coughs> if you look at the past history of drug abuse in the United States, it confirms this. The meth epidemic of the, of the, of the 2000s, where we had first groups and then we had individuals cooking up meth, spreading all over, causing horrendous uh, damage. Um, until we controlled the over-the-counter precursor, we didn't control it. When we did control the over-the-counter precursor, that went down. When we reduced cocaine supply from Colombia, beginning in about 2006, cocaine use dropped by 60% roughly as far as we can measure it. When we had less heroin, when we had less diverted pills, we didn't have fentanyl, these things have been down. And until, they, until you reduce that poisoning. Now, again, do we want to treat people? Of course we want to. I like to say if we had an outbreak of, of poisoned or tainted tuna coming from a factory, of course we would try to warn people. Of course we would treat the victims and try to save their lives. But the most important thing would be to stop the factory from producing and shipping and distributing uh, poisoned tuna. We're not thinking this through in the right way. We think this is, we're thinking of this in categories that are ill-suited to the real danger, and as a result, we're not coming to grips with it. Um, one, of the, one of the key areas here has, that you've argued for then is, is supply, getting the supply uh, off the streets and, and doing that in a smart intelligence base, and I mean that is in, in intelligence, not just smart, uh, way. Uh, what, get, can you give us some policy prescriptions, some things? If you were advising administration, and I know you've, you have advised the administration, what are some things they can do? How are they doing now? What do you think they could do better? Um, what are some things that we need to alter the focus on? I think the most important thing to do would be to give us um, real-time data um, because it's not just it's not going to be just federal people. It's not just going to be federal money. You need more people and more effort on the problem at the local level. We do need some unique federal effort. I would divide the focus of, of, of a serious strategy in three parts. One, you need to go after the source of these poisons. Um, most of those poisons are foreign. Not all of them are. 
it's a case of diverted pharmaceuticals. They're coming within our country, and there needs to be a greater focus on controlling the distribution and the quantities being distributed. I believe the administration is moving on that front, uh, although the, uh, the, the, the highest growth now is not in pharmaceutical diversion. It's in heroin and uh, fentanyl. That's coming from outside the country, and that is a federal government responsibility to work more closely, to find pressure points with the governments of Mexico and, um, and China to reduce this threat. Now, I, it's been in the news. It's clear. Uh, the president, the attorney general have talked to Chinese officials about fentanyl and told them it needs to stop. They need to put more direct pressure on this. I mean, I worked uh, on some of these issues in the past where we had precursors for methamphetamine coming from China, going to Mexico. The Chinese will not help us. They're, they're not particularly concerned about damage to the people of the United States. Let's be honest about this. They are um, they're going to do this when they have a reason that's self-interested for helping us. So we're going to have to give them, we'll put some leverage on this. It, yes, it can be a priority. We have a number of things that we need to do work with the Chinese on better. So it's difficult to say it's either or. But one of the ways that meth is come or, or fentanyl is coming into this country is through international um, mails. They are interested in international parcel post because of commerce and trade. Right now, they get a below market rate in for delivering packages from China into the United States. It's time to tell them that's over. You're going to pay market rates. You're going to have to know your shipper as private companies like FedEx and UPS do. You're going to have to have data on the on the on the shipping end and on the receiving end, and you're going to have to send that in advance so it could be screened because there's there's millions, hundreds of millions of packages. You cannot brute force screen them. You need to have a database that can look for um, suspicious um, patterns and known suspicious addresses and individuals and screen them and reduce the, the number that you're going to look at. But basically, I think we have to tell the Chinese, given the magnitude of the deaths here, if you're going to be a huge source of this, we're going to charge you whatever it takes to keep Americans safe. That is a lever that they will respond to. In the case of Mexico, we have a number of issues, again, that we're trying to deal with in trade, immigration, and other things. But we need to have the cooperation to go in and go after these criminal groups. Those criminal groups are not good for the future of Mexico. You need a stable, uh, non-criminal um, environment where the rule of law and not the rule of violence is, uh, is dominant. That's good for the future of Mexico. That's something that's antithetical to uh, drug trafficking, drug gangs, and the, and, the, and the business they're in. So we need to work better with the Mexicans. But look, we also need to do a better job on the border. This is a huge issue, as you point out. When you think about the intelligence problem of terror, we've all been educated by, it's a true needle in the haystack problem. One individual, a small amount of anthrax or some other substance, a couple individuals can come into the United States and be a threat. We have to look for those people all the time. We have to be on the lookout for what they can do. We have to intercept them. We have to disrupt their operations. We solve that needle in the haystack problem every day there's not a terrorist attack on the, inside the border of the United States. Hard problem, enormous hard work, never sure that you're going to be safe tomorrow, but every single day, thanks to the hard work of people, we are safe. And, and we're safe because of that hard work. We're not putting the same effort into this killer of Americans to mobilize intelligence and enforcement efforts against this threat. What terrorist threat is now on the horizon that's going to kill over 50,000 Americans next year? These drug traffickers are going to do that. 
they're doing it right now. My argument, you've got to put some resources into that. But you also have to put resources at the local level in the distribution and sale. And what, uh, what real-time data does is it allows you to see where the hotspots are, where you have to put resources, both public health and public safety resources, where the networks are linked at the border and where they're linked internationally. To destroy a network phenomenon, you have to get a big enough piece, take it down and so that it can't rebuild. You need to be able to see the beast in order to kill the beast. One of the uh, the solution to this we saw in the in the last administration was uh, broader distribution of Narcan, which is a uh, o- uh, an overdose medication, which absolutely saves lives. Those who are overdosed, uh, first responders are able to administer it uh, and revive folks. Um, but there was a focus on that as, as one of the primary tools to stop this epidemic. Um, there's been a push to, to do a Canadian or Vancouver-style uh, injection rooms, safe, quote-unquote, safe injection rooms as a solution to this. Explain why, in, in your view, which I, I know, that, that that's not going to, to cut it. Well, there are two different things there. One, of course, Narcan's a life-saving drug, and it should be available and it has become more widely available. But if you want to ask, well, okay, we had a, we had a maybe wouldn't have set it up this way, we had a policy experiment. What will the more Narcon can do? Will it save the lives? Will it reverse the trajectory of overdose deaths? The answer is no. Now, it will save individual lives, and we should do that. We should, as I say, we should treat more people. But if you want to stop the pileup of victims, you've got to stop the making of victims. The making of victims comes from the ingestion of the poison. In Vancouver, the death rate's not going down. The, many users do not use a injection site where there's a nurse who's going to revive them. Not to mention, there are all kinds of problems with they bring their own drugs. So now the argument is, well, the government should give them drugs. Well, okay, what kind of democracy is it where the government has control and is indifferent to the fact that it is essentially controlling people through their addiction? It's we know how to treat people. We know how to keep them safe from these things. But instead of doing that with some kind of crazy view of what that human freedom is really about d- damaging yourself, that we, we are not friends of human freedom if we don't allow self-destruction, that's a real perversion of our, of our society, of, our, of what we care about, of what we should be caring about with our fellow human beings, our brothers and our sisters, our fellow citizens. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of destructive thinking about this problem that that I think also um, is a complication including getting a clear view. It's a poison. The people who pervade the poison have to be stopped. The manufacture and distribution of the poison has to be stopped. Simultaneously, people have to be treated. They have to be revived when there's an overdose. But we want to get them into treatment that's effective. That's the other thing. You hear very, very little, too little talk of drug courts and diversion programs where people who come into into contact with the criminal justice system because of their behavior, many times it can be theft or prostitution, sometimes it's, it's low-level drug dealing, get court-supervised treatment. That treatment is more effective because people are in denial. If you Most families know this. You've got a family member who's got a problem with drugs or alcohol. You say, I think you got a problem, Uncle Joey. Uncle Joey doesn't say, Oh, can you help get me some medical care? Can you, can you, uh, um, can you uh, um, um, help me um, get the treatment I need and keep me clean and sober? The reaction will be anger, resentment. I don't want it. That's the drugs talking. 
you need to have people who engage. Almost everybody who I've met who gets clean and sober, and we should say there are millions of people who are clean and sober today who have had an addiction problem. This is not a one-way trip. We can save more people. But we have to stop the poison. We have to get people into treatment. We have to use the court system to help public health and to get people uh, out of walkaway treatment and avoiding treatment. And we need, to, we need to pull the people who are continuing to poison them off the streets. We don't have to send them to jail for 20 years. We, I'm perfectly willing to consider a, a low-level strategy that goes after low-level street dealers for, for a year, six months. We want to break the chain. We have to think of this as a public health problem and a strategic problem. We have to break the chain of poisoning and addiction, whatever it takes isolate the addicted, get them treatment, isolate the, the dealers and keep them away from our communities. But at the higher level, I also have no problem with the president's suggestion we should, uh, we should use the federal death penalty statute against high-level tra traffickers. Why? Because ultimately you're not, probably not going to execute anybody, but at the highest level to avoid the death penalty, what do they do? They have to turn over their whole network. They allow, they become a weapon to destroy the very thing we need to destroy to save lives. And that's an important key. And I do think that's an insight that the administration has grabbed that shows that they really do get it. One of the challenges right now in the, in the, in the, uh, the drug space and policy space has been um, the, the proliferation of, of marijuana legalization ballot initiatives. We saw this in Colorado and Washington. I, you know, just was walking down just a couple hours ago, walking down the streets of Washington, D.C., where marijuana is now ostensibly legalized under under the city rule and smelled marijuana. It's a it's a common thing here. Um, how does the the permissiveness of marijuana use and, and really state, you know, endorsement of, of legalization across the country? How is that affecting this opioid crisis? Well, it's pretty devastating. I mean, um, the great example that President Obama talked about was Colorado. Okay, so Colorado was allowed to violate federal law and, um, and have commercial distribution of marijuana. It's not the only place that's done this, but it was the, it was the signature place for, for President Obama. Uh, and Colorado went from uh, a place that had a serious drug problem. There's no question prior to this it had a serious drug problem, marijuana and other drugs to the place, there's no state that has more problems with addiction than Colorado. Um, uh, marijuana use, a marijuana treatment need, um, uh, increased use of other drugs, opioids and uh, methamphetamine. Um, um, parts of Colorado have been um, largely devastated. You hear reports of Pueblo, Colorado, where um, it's so bad, uh, um, they're trying to figure out uh, how to get a handle on anything, or the, the entire uh, community falls apart. Um, there are two problems with marijuana. One, the effect that marijuana use has on on, on substance abuse generally. And uh, again, while um, people who advocate for legalization have put out a lot of misinformation, the fact of the matter is, for decades now, we have had study after study after study that shows, yes, marijuana is a gateway. That is, if you start with marijuana, you have a much higher probability of going on to another drug. Um, and uh, yes, it is true that not everybody does this, but it is also true that uh, almost all people who go on start with marijuana. That's even more true today. Um, but in addition to that, marijuana itself is a very dangerous substance of abuse. It has been minimized by saying, well, 
There are, there are overdose deaths from opioids, but there aren't overdose deaths from marijuana. Well, that's not the only harm we're talking about here. One, we're talking about addiction. For years, the available information, which, is, which has its limitations, these are self-report surveys, but have shown that the, the largest single contributor to treatment need is marijuana dependency. If you talk to treatment providers, they confirm this. They have for decades. Today's marijuana is even more dangerous because it's more potent. Legalization has allowed uh, an industry to develop that is concentrating THC, the psychoactive ingredient, in higher and higher concentrations, not one or two or three percent of marijuana that was smoked in joints in the 70s, but of 10 percent, of 20 percent, of 50 percent, of 80 percent in various different forms that are smoked, eaten in juices, in candy bars, in other things, in concentrates. These are much more dangerous. And we don't have the same kind of longitudinal evidence to even measure how dangerous. But what we do have is, in the last 15 years, are studies that show, in addition to all the other things, the gateway element, the dependency element, that, that, that regular marijuana use, daily marijuana use, at, at the ages of young adults, even with potencies that were lower in the past where these longitudinal studies were done, contributes to permanent IQ loss, higher risk of serious mental illness, schizophrenia, as well as um, uh, neuroses in young people. So when we're talking about reducing the IQ of young people, young adults, by seven or eight IQ points, that's the difference between the average person having an average life and having a sub-average life where the kind of job you can hold, the kind of organization you can bring to the, your life, the kind of prospects you can have are much diminished. We have, been, we have been sold a bill of goods by people who want to legalize marijuana by minimizing the harms and denying the research that has been repeated over and over and over again of how dangerous this is. And I just add some of that, the latest research on that actually shows, uh, which I know you've seen, shows the uh, way that marijuana, we now believe, primes the brain for opioids and for addiction. Whether or not um, it's a gateway drug or not, it, it can fundamentally change that for people. Um, I want to wrap up here. I want to give you kind of the, the final final word. If you had the ability and, and power, and we live in a democracy, so you don't, but to do one thing, um, right now uh, that would change the trajectory of this uh, opioid crisis and reduce deaths? Um, maybe not one thing, but what would you do? I think the most important thing is to give people a real-time picture of where the problem is. I think it brings urgency right now. There's a lot of denial. My great fear now is that um, um, because people aren't sure what to do about it, because they're not thinking about it clearly and they're confused about it, they believe that it may be something we tolerate. You know, a wise man once said a problem you can't solve is a fact. If people think the drug war can't be won, we can't do anything to reduce supply, There's all we can do is treat an incredibly and rapidly growing large number of, of, of addicted individuals, they are not going to do what they should do, and they're not going to, political leaders are not going to take this on as a priority or accept it. They're going to try to avoid it because they think they can't succeed. They can't succeed, and I think one of the things that President Trump deserves credit for is he has spoken out as forcefully as any president. My work on this goes back to President Reagan about uh, confronting this issue. 
Now, um, it's a big hole he has to dig out of. I mean, President Obama and, um, uh, and the drug traffickers' behavior um, created um, a huge combination of, of forces in uh, opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and the unforced error of legalizing marijuana here that have come together to make a terrible future uh, um, clear and all too close for America. Um, but I do think that the way to do this, if the one thing you could do is let's have real-time data on what's happening. Let's make people see what's happening in their community. Let's let people see where things are getting better. Let's allow, when you, when you go after some of these trafficking groups, you need to see the distribution networks that, and the effects of them throughout the country. Is a measure asking China, when China claims, oh, no, 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 we found the guy who was producing fentanyl, and we put a bullet in his head last week, so that's all done. We did our part. And then you see there's no change in fentanyl. We need to have that information in real time. We need to be able to, um, we need to, be able to, to roll in on, um, on hotspots with real resources, both local, state, and federal, because the hands and the hearts that are going to carry the burden here, I think the American people know when they think about it and aren't just being told from Washington, those hands are going to come from your neighbors and friends. And they have to be organized. They have to be um, um, confident that they can make a difference. And they have to be supported in proper ways up the chain. But if we do this at the local level, at the border, and at the source, all those things are additive. Well, as one who uh, lived this, oversaw the a, one of the record declines in in drug use in America. Um, I know you know that this is possible to do. So um, I want to thank you for joining us today, John, and sharing your informed perspective. My pleasure, Brian. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for downloading our podcast today. Um, Please subscribe and tell your friends about Policy Talk. If you have questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brian Blake. Good day.